Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to The Intervention. I'm here uh, without Steve today, but we are joined by Comrade Levi, who's again part of our project on Palestine, Zionism, and Empire. How are you doing tonight, Levi? Doing well. Good, man. Just wanted to let you know that a lot of the feedback we've gotten uh, so far on Parts 1A and Part 1B that we put out, it's been really good, and uh, I think our fans are liking it. So thanks again for that. Well, hopefully they're hitting subscribe and writing reviews so everybody right. can find this podcast. That's right. Yep. We need to get the word out there more. But yeah, no, so f- good feedback so far. So I think as part of that, and to kind of keep this going, because those main parts do take a lot of time um, to get together, but we want to keep the conversation going. So um, just for everybody listening, we wanted to kind of start on like an article series that could run kind of in conjunction with our main narrative. Um, and I think the point is to just look at things that kind of discuss and demonstrate some of the themes that I think are going to continue to come up throughout our conversations on these topics. So namely here, we found a few that really emphasize and kind of let us analyze the importance of history and historiography, um, the role of anti-Semitism and victimhood in the Zionist project broadly, and then also the Israeli government's relationship with far-right, like ostensibly anti-Semitic movements and governments today. Um, you know, we see these things kind of continuing to crop up in like Orban's Hungary and, you know, Donald Trump's eventual America again, right? So it's just, you know, it's just going to keep the conversation going and maybe in a different way as well. So we're going to get started tonight um, with an article from actually 1997 in The Economist, you know, noted imperialist rag. Um, but Edward Said did have this to say about it. So here's a quote from him. So, quote, it describes the Israeli historian's debate about what role and what blame should be assigned to Israel's wars and to its army. This is an important development in that for the first time since 1948, the wall of official denial has been penetrated and the silence about what took place in 1948 has been broken despite the fact that some intellectuals still refuse to acknowledge the factual evidence. And he's, you know, again, quoted this in the same year that it came out, 1997. So, Levi, I'll turn it over to you to actually read the article, but did you have any initial comments on this series or this article in particular before we get into it? I think it's important to realize that 1997, what's going on at that moment is that this is the time of the Oslo Accords, and it appeared to be more than any other time up to this point when a two-state solution looked like it was going to happen, or, or at least some sort of resolution was supposed to be happening under Bill Clinton and Ariel Sharon. Uh, in addition to the PLO, uh, which, of course, did not come to pass. Uh, So even a rag like The Economist was willing to take what ended up being an incredible risk uh, with very low reward on their end to state that Israel is imperfect, Mm -hmm. uh, which they got huge pushback on. So as tame as this article might sound as it's being read, it has to be put in the context of the Economist was just lambasted for writing something so anti-Israel, so anti-Semitic at the time, uh, which of course is utter nonsense. Nothing about this is anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean, having like pre-read this article, and just I, I agree that it's kind of tepid. I think as everybody's going to hear, you know, and I think we'll have like some real criticisms of it, and we can juxtapose that with what Said said about it, and he, you know acknowledged it as an important development, right? And it was just kind of like, I don't know, my impression was that it's kind of milk toast, you know? (laughs) I mean, milk toast is, even putting it lightly, this is... An understatement, yeah. This is downright apologetic to what's going on in Israel. I mean, this to to even call this liberal is very kind. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it's just to demonstrate how how bad it was before and how like untouchable third rail it was even before that. And again, you can't even go that far, right? So it's I mean, can we even imagine the economist publishing something like this that Israel needs to come to terms with its own history? I mean, is it possible today? No, I mean, and I did a quick perusal of like what's you know available on the archive, and I mean, I didn't dig that deep, but I mean, if you can imagine what it looks like when you pull it up in terms of the framing and the narrative, it's it's exactly what you would think today, right? I think that a lot of these conversations are even going to resonate with listeners when thinking about the American context, um, but at that point, I think we really just need to get into it. Yeah, absolutely, man. So take it away. All right, so the title is The Unchosen People, subtitle, Did the Palestinians Go or Were They Pushed? The Debate Among Historians Racks Israel. It is not always easy for a man to speak truthfully about his early childhood. For a nation, it can be harder still. Next year, Israel turns 50, an age that finds some men complacent, but others still at war with their inner demons. Israel in middle age shows both tendencies. Many Israelis have come to sense that their state's survival is at last assured, a feeling that has brought ease to some but caused others to examine what might be called Israel's original sin. This analysis hurts. Through all its adversities, Israel has generally enjoyed the singular luxury of believing in its own cause. This was a conviction nourished not only by the immoderate aims of its enemies, Israel, Dalant, etc., but also by the epic circumstances of its own birth the calamity of the Holocaust, redemption in the promised land. So let's let's pause right there real quick, just because I think, as we've demonstrated, associating the birth of Israel with the Holocaust, I think is some sort of intentional misrepresentation of the actual history, right? Given how far back the, at least, beginnings of the birth, quote-unquote, actually go. I mean, I, I don't disagree that, like, the actual birth with, like, the Nekba and all that was actually around 1948, but I think it's intentional to kind of place that there, is it not? Yeah, I think in a way, it's the economists taking the American perspective. Right. Because that's where you can really link when America was interested in the birth of Israel. To go further back would, might even be to pry some of the sins of America. So they don't want to go any further back than 1948. That's when Israel deserved to be supported, because that's when the United States supported Israel. Right. And uh, we're already touching on some of the really risque, quote-unquote, language that's being used here. I mean, it says, uh, others to examine what might be called Israel's original sin. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might as well be doing this in a stereotypical Jewish accent, you know, this is like World War II Goebbels-level propaganda of anti-Semitism to suggest that Israel has an original sin. I mean, The Economist is really going crazy out here. Right. Might be called. <laughs> I mean, this is what really got them in trouble, is to suggest that Israel has a skeleton in its closet. I mean, it, it, the title of the article itself, to even allude that, is, or that Palestinians exist and are an unchosen people, I mean, it's... It's so tame, but it, it's just, it caused such an outrage. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just goes back to this whole idea that if that is true, there is a, you know, a people and a, you know, the formations of a state that were there before, then how can you justify what's going on now? And so you can see why people might be so sensitive to it. 
Well, the Zionists might be so sensitive to it. So I think we can pick up and move from there. Yeah. Few Israelis have been disposed to question the story that Israel came into being in response to an overwhelming need against terrible odds and in the face of unremittent Arab hostility. So at least the story used to go until a group of Israeli historians started shining a cold white light on the true circumstances of Israel's beginnings. They tell a less flattering story that questions some cherished assumptions, that the Jewish victory in 1948 was a victory of the few against the many, that the Palestinian refugees fled involuntarily, and that the Arab states closed their minds firmly from the beginning to the very possibility of peace with the new state. The core text in the new history appeared a decade ago in Benny Morris's The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, printed in 1987. Taking advantage of declassified state documents in America, Britain, and Israel, he took a new look at what caused 600,000 to 800,000 of the Arabs of the Palestine to flee during the War of 1947 through 1949. For obvious reasons, the matter had remained largely unexamined in Israeli society, if not in Israeli historiography. Just as the early Zionists had optimistically and inaccurately described Palestine as a land without a people for a people without a land, so many Israelis had been content to believe that the Palestinians fled of their own accord, in panic or at the behest of the Arab states. I mean, there's some more really risque language, like you said earlier, about like, this is inaccurate to actually believe that, you know, this was a <laughs> land without a people, right? Like, ooh. Man, we're getting we're getting a little spicy. But I mean also just like this whole idea that like people like voluntarily like flee their homes materially. Why would people just up and leave their, you know, belongings unless they were faced with extreme violence or just you know some some kind of disastrous event, you know? Like why would they just flee? Like I mean if you just stop and think about it for a second, it doesn't make a whole lot of like sense, you know what I mean? That's why like and a lot of times, like when we're talking about these things, I think like people want to overcomplicate it. And it's like, no, I mean, some, th- some things are really simple. Like we don't need a complex explanation for a lot of things. And this just sort of comes to the counter narrative of the fact that the reason that a lot of Israelis, or I should take that back, a lot of Zionists, a lot of Jews wanted to leave Israel and up and leave their homeland in order to take a risk in moving to Palestine. I mean, there's a reason that they're leaving there, too. They're being prosecuted. Right. But it doesn't mean that they then have the right to prosecute the peoples that they come in contact with. Mm-hmm. That you would think they actually have a lot in common on that regard. Right. And so this line, that I'm sure you've heard before, that Palestine is a land with a people, without a people, for a people without a land. Uh, and I didn't bring that up in the first episode that we recorded, because it's really, it, it's a mythical line. Uh, it's it's from the early 1800s, from really, really early anti-Semitism. And it's sort of misinterpreted a lot, even here, uh, even though it's, as you said, misinterpreted in a kind of positive way. But Zionists understood that human beings were living in Palestine, just as the founding fathers understood that human beings were living on the frontier. They right. weren't white human beings. They were a people without a land. Mm -hmm. which means that they were not a nation. They didn't recognize them as, quote-unquote, a people because they didn't have a claim to a modern European-style nation. That's what makes them, at heart, imperialists, as I would argue, is they only understand people in terms of imperial language of the nation-state. Right, in relation to 
property in the case of property as it's understood in like the Western European case in the case of America, and then you know people in relation to a, a nation state as defined by what Europe Europe looked like, you know, through the late eighteen hundreds and beyond, right? Yeah, a specific proto-capitalist or capitalist structure of a people. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, no founding father would claim that the American West was unpeopled. They would just claim that it's not settled or cultivated or cultured. Or civilized. Exactly. This is manifest destiny. Right. That's exactly what this line is. So Mr. Morris painted a darker and more complex picture, detailing the many instances during the war when the Palestinian inhabitants of towns and villages were deliberately put to flight. There was, he concluded, no overall Zionist plan to evict all the Arabs of Palestine. Many of the expulsions took place in the heat of battle and the fog of war. But he also argued that the idea of a population transfer by agreement with the Arab states, if possible, but by force if necessary, had been carefully considered by David Ben-Gurion and the other Zionist leaders and hovered in the background of their actions and deliberations. So, just this whole framing of the article, right? Like, who initiated this battle? Who initiated the war that would create this fog in which people could get displaced amid, I mean, documented massacres during the Nekba, right? So, I don't know. It's just, when you frame it like that, it obscures, I think, which are, I mean, very clear efforts to ethnically cleanse a region, right? Yeah, it's that sort of truism that not all wars are genocide, but almost all genocides occur during a war. Right. It creates, that fog of war very intentionally creates a situation where the worst in an ideology, a people, a nation can come to fruition. And I'm not suggesting that Israel created this war for the purpose solely of mass eradicating Palestinian people. But with the war going on, there were plenty of people that were interested in mass eradicating the Palestinian people that suddenly had the ability to do so with carte blanche. Right. I guess, you know, and we'll get into it a little bit more in the coming paragraphs here. But at the end of the day, it seems like they're almost some of like the historian arguments that go back and forth. It seems like they're almost just getting into like a little bit of like a semantic argument about well that semantics not the right word but you know well did they what was the intentionality behind it right and i guess at some level i just go back to this well it's just no matter what the intentions were these things happened and at some like i guess maybe consequentialist level like a lot of people were evicted at the end of the day as a result so i don't know how much like again to get into like an academic squabble really matters when you know the results are the results right yeah, and I think that's a layer to this. So the economist is one layer. And the other is the fact that this these are academics within Israel. These are Israeli academics. These are not Palestinian academics. Right. I think the economist actually makes note of that, that as you say, this isn't quite semantics, but it's not that much higher stakes. What Morris is arguing is not even that Ben-Gurion needs to be considered a war criminal. He's just arguing that things are slightly worse than they appear. Right. Which is driving just this complete breakdown in Israeli society and calls for, you know, a complete re-understanding of their education. And it's because this is a direct attack, even though it's a semantic attack, 
on Israeli exceptionalism. You can't have an Israel that maybe did something wrong. Right. Even if it's that slight. So continuing on. But he also argued that the idea of a population transfer by agreement with the Arab states, if possible, but by force if necessary, had been carefully considered by David Ben-Gurion and the other Zionist leaders and hovered in the background of their actions and deliberations. Soon afterwards, another new historian, Avi Shalim, went further in Collusion Across Jordan, published 1988. He claimed that Golda Meir, who subsequently became Prime Minister of Israel and Transjordan's King Abdullah, agreed secretly with British acquiescence to carve up Palestine between them, depriving the Palestinian Arabs of the portion that was to be theirs under the partition plan of the United Nations. Whether or not there was a secret agreement, this is what actually happened. I just pull, I pulled a quote from Golda Meir that I thought kind of fit this whole conversation. She quoted as saying, quote, It was not as if there was a Palestinian people in Palestine and we came and threw them out and took their country away from them. They did not exist. So just to, I mean, given that conversation there, I thought that that was a good quote to at least represent what her view on the situation was. Exactly. You could even imagine somebody like Andrew Jackson saying that he did not throw out the Native Americans from the West. He moved them because they weren't a people. They had no organized political resistance. Yeah, the Cherokees didn't exist as a society as we understand it. So therefore, we can, you know, take them over to Oklahoma. Exactly. I mean, I don't see any great difference between the two. I think that's a really apt comparison. These two historians are only the most prominent in what is now a popular genre. To cite a few examples, in a subsequent writing, Mr. Morris has criticized the policy of retaliation raids adopted by Israel in the 1950s. In his piece, Israel's Border Wars, published 1993, Ilan Pop of Haifa University has added further to the collusion thesis, The Making of the Arab-Israel Conflict, published 1992. Mr. Shalem has accused Israel of missing opportunities to make peace soon after the 1948 war. Others have strayed beyond relations with the Arabs to ask even harsher questions about Israel's birth. In The Seventh Million, published 1993, Tom Segev of Haaretz, Israel's top quality daily, examined the ambivalence with which members of the Yeshuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, greeted the fate of their European brethren during the Second World War and the new state's later exploitation of the Holocaust as an instrument of nation-building and self-justification. What to make of this spate of reinterpretation? Some Israeli intellectuals seem to take solace in the thought that, unsettling though the revelations of the new historians may be, they demonstrate a national coming of age. In Rubber Bullets, published 1997, for instance, Yaron Izari, a political scientist, makes a gallant attempt to weave Israel's new readiness to face up to its past with its crisis of conscience during the Palestinian Intifada. He sees in his own relations with his father and his son a, quote, battle of the stories, as a new generation of Israelis tries to emancipate itself from the, quote, internalized national epic, end quote. This is all very well. But for all the psychological plausibility of the new historians, are they writing decent history? In Fabricating Israeli History, the New Historians, published 1997, 
Ephraim Karsh, an, quote, old historian, but a youngish and evidently angry man accuses the new historians of getting their facts wrong, and worse, of doing so out of the very motives they ascribe to the old historians, namely to make an ideological point. Quote, more than anything else, he writes, the new historiography is a state of mind, or rather of fashion. What unites its practitioners, by and large, is subscription to the all-too-common perception of Zionism as an offshoot of European imperialism, or at the very least, as an aggressive and expansionist movement. I mean, it's so funny to me that like this dude doesn't realize the history he subscribes to is pure ideology. You know what I mean? Like... I don't know. I mean, maybe he does realize it, and maybe he just realizes how important that ideology is to the project, or maybe he truly believes. I don't know. You know, and again, calling out hypocrisy is only so useful, but I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, this is incredible. I mean, this sort of reminds me of the response to W.E.B. Du Bois by the historical profession. I know we have this in common of having an affinity for Du Bois, but when he would write his histories that showed slavery, racism, and the core value of blackness in the United States, he was called a ideologue. Mm-hmm. Like how, how could he possibly argue this when the reality is the ever expansion and greatness of American liberal capitalism? Uh, but of course, most of the time, Du Bois was purely ignored. Nobody cared. Right. Uh, so this actually is a sign that there is some movement towards a fear this new history could actually cause some sort of change. Right. But again, I mean, what is the nature of that change? What does it matter if some Israelis seem to think that maybe their nation did something wrong at the beginning? Yeah. It's not going to lead to this place where they decide that, like, we need to completely rethink the foundations of this project, I don't think. Right? At least not this tepid criticism that we get here. No. And I mean, part of that is this is 1997. This is apparently the very beginning of it. And there are so many Palestinian historians that have done just mountains of work showing this hypocrisy to even greater levels. But are they even engaged with? Uh, My guess is they're roundly ignored, even by the Academy. Right. Yeah, and but then even like this whole idea of like this tepid criticism and exposing new facts, right, that at least understand it just reeks of like liberalism to me, like, you know, liberalism in the US as well, where it's like, it's, there's still this notion behind that, that's like, oh, well, you know, maybe we had problems in our past, but we're, you know, we're constantly striving to get better, right? Like that, the moral arc of history bends towards justice kind of shit. And it's like, well, no, not if you don't like intervene in like a fundamentally flawed system and project, you know? Right, and this gets to the my acts about academia. I mean, they can write this tepid, left-of-center sort of history, but they themselves are benefiting from the very system that they appear to be criticizing. Right. I mean, they're, they're sitting relatively comfortably, and that's why the claims that they're making are so slight, because they really run the risk of you know losing this comfortable seat or being ignored or being not published, which is just as bad as being fired. Right. So, I mean, there, like you said, there are extreme limits to this idea of publishing information as a means of activism. There's got to be more to it. Yeah. And I guess just to wrap it up, but like just to even generalize this point out broadly, I was just reading Michael Parenti's um, Inventing Reality, you know, and he just talks about how 
it's almost like a Gramscian perspective of like cultural hegemony, right? As it relates to like news, news reporting and things like that, right? And it's like, you may think that you're coming to, you know, the table, whether it be academia or in journalism with like a new concept, but even if you are a radical concept or a radical framing, but you may have done that before. And if it was too radical, it may have gotten, you know, pushed down, right? And like, you don't, you find yourself not getting like, published, printed, et cetera, et cetera, right? So like, even if you think you're going against the grain a little bit, just the mechanisms of actual, you know, power have conditioned you to to know where the line is at some level. And he's got like quotes from like journalists and, you know, academics that say as much, you know what I mean? That there is real censorship in a lot of ways um, that prevent people from going too far, you know? So I guess, you know, there's probably some of that at play as well here. Like there's personal interest, sure, and there's just, you know, structures that make it really difficult to truly, you know, challenge them too hard, right? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of this famous line about historians where you can win the beverage award for writing about a strike. But if you as a professor try to form a union or make a strike on the campus, you are losing your job. <laughs> right. Just as I'm sure these Israeli academics, you can win a, an award for talking about the sins of Israel, but the second that you come out in support of the Palestinian people, you've lost your tenure. Right. So Mr. Karsh charges the new historians, not least, with exaggerating their own novelty. Israel's, quote, old historians, he says, never subscribe to the simplistic, one-dimensional view of the Arab-Israeli conflict that the new historians target and parody. He also challenges the new historians on matters of substance. There was, he asserts, no collusion of the kind Mr. Shalim describes between Israel and Transjordan. The fact that Abdullah and Mayer met is not in doubt, but Mr. Karsh produces a report overlooked by Mr. Shalim in which Mayer tells her colleagues how she explained to the king that the Jewish side could not support a violation of the UN partition plan. And God knows Mayer would never say one thing and do another thing. So that's got to be true. Yeah, no politician does. Come on. It is, however, against Mr. Morris that Mr. Karsh deploys his heaviest guns. One of Mr. Morris's contentions, remember, is that the Zionist leadership all along foresaw the need to expel the Arabs of Palestine from the areas allotted to the Jewish state under the UN's partition plan. Mr. Morris based this claim on Ben-Gurion's own speeches and writings. But in a forensic examination of precisely the same writings, Mr. Karsh reaches the opposite conclusion. He accuses Mr. Morris of willfully distorting the record by selective quotation. Space permits just one example of this creative editing. Mr. Morris concedes that Ben-Gurion did not publicly advocate the collective transfer of the Arabs. But he claims to find a hint of this idea in a speech by the great man summarized thus. I mean, when you couch a quote by calling the great man, man a great man i mean you got to know it's unbiased ben gurion starkly outlined the emergent jewish state's main problem its prospective population of 520,000 jews and 350,000 arabs including jerusalem the state would have a population of about 1 million 40 percent of which would be non-jews quote this fact must be viewed in all its clarity and sharpness with such a population composition, there cannot even be complete certainty that the government will be held by a Jewish majority 
there can be no stable and strong Jewish state so long as it has a Jewish majority of only 60%, end quote. The Yeshuv's situation and fate, he went on, compelled the adoption of a, quote, new approach, new habits of mind, end quote, to, quote, suit our new future, we must think like a state, end quote. At Mr. Karsh complains, this passage leaves the impression that Ben-Gurion advocated population transfer to solve the new state's demographic problems. What Mr. Morris does not report is that Ben-Gurion added, from here stems the first and principal conclusion. In order to ensure not only the establishment of the Jewish state, but its existence and destiny as well, we must bring one and a half million Jews to the country and root them here. It is only when there will be at least two million Jews in the country that the state will be truly established. We must think in terms of a state. In other words, Jewish immigration, not the expulsion of the Arabs, was Ben-Gurion's solution. As for the Arab in the Jewish state, he went on to say in the self-same speech, We must think in terms of a state, in terms of independence, in terms of full responsibility for ourselves and for others. In our state, there will be non-Jews as well, and all of them will be equal citizens, equal in everything without any exception. The attitude of the Jewish state to the Arab citizens will be an important factor in building good neighborly relations with the Arab states. If the Arab citizen will feel at home in our state, and if his status will not be in the least different from that of the Jew, then Arab distrust will accordingly subside, and a bridge to a Semitic Jewish Arab alliance will be built. Okay, so at the end of the day, I'm going to go back to this whole idea of like the consequences. Does it really matter what you know was said beforehand, right? And also, I want to ask the question is like, okay, if you actually believe that within the state that you're going to build, that everybody's going to be equal in everything without any exception, then why is it so critical that you essentially force a population majority of Jewish, of European Jews, or, you know, maybe not necessarily all European, but, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't know, man, you're not really convincing me that you're not trying to build some, like, theocratic, like, quote-unquote, ethno-state, like, despite that last caveat, you know? <laughs> And it even just like, to me, it comes back to this exceptionalist marker, like even the way The Economist frames this quotation is it calls Ben-Gurion the great man. You know, he's known as being this infallible founding father. They literally use the language of founding father in Israel. They borrowed American language to describe their foundation. And these people are infallible. Right. But they're also human beings. They say contradictory things constantly because they're political actors. Did Ben-Gurion believe this? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, but did he act on it? Did the state of Israel act on this? No, they didn't. This is not the reality. And that's exactly why Morris didn't place his emphasis on that full quotation, because it was the first part of it that he believed Ben-Gurion was speaking his mind, and the second part of it he believed was irrelevant. It wasn't truthful. Right. And which part of it came true? Exactly. Even if you want to tell me that Ben-Gurion believed these contradictory things, he definitely didn't satisfy both things. And if he had, I mean, the world would probably be a, a better place for it. But I, my guess is he had no interest in actually satisfying both of those things at once. I don't, I don't think so either, based on what I've read. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a great man. You don't uh, believe yeah. that? I mean... 
I mean, if you still believe that George Washington was a great man, then I've got a friggin' bridge to sell you. <laughs> Mr. Karsh's will assuredly not be the last word. In an exchange last year in Middle East Quarterly, Mr. Shliam mounted a spirited, and given the asperity of Mr. Karsh's attack, good-natured, defense of his collusion thesis. More recently, in Haaretz, Mr. Morris complained with some justice that Mr. Karsh had sought to rubbish the exhaustive arguments of a long book by singling out only a couple of pages. It is true that some pieces of selective quotation do not confute a whole thesis, nor could a dispassionate reader of Mr. Morris's measured book agree with Mr. Karsh that its author was determined to portray the Zionist movement as colonial and aggressive. Mr. Morris concluded, after all, that no overall order or master plan existed to evict the Arabs. Indeed, Palestine writers say Mr. Morris is too ready to justify these expulsions that did occur as ad hoc military responses to the vicissitudes of war. Mr. Karsh also ought to heed the advice of an old historian, Itamar Rabinovich, in his, quote, The Road Not Taken, published 1991. Quote, you do not have to accept the whole of the new history in order to recognize the need to correct and refine the orthodox view. Nevertheless, Mr. Carr seems to have scored a palpable hit on the contentious issue of the strategic thinking of Ben-Gurion. And on this issue there is, after all, something large at stake. Did the Zionist movement genuinely proffer a hand of friendship, or did it see all along the need for ethnic cleansing? The war of Israel's historians is fated to continue. That is probably, on balance, a good thing. Nobody can deny that, whatever the original intentions of Zionism's leaders, their project turned out to have calamitous consequences for the Arabs of Palestine. It may be that by accepting their portion of the blame, Israelis will find it easier to reach a reconciliation with the Palestinians. But not, it is to be hoped, by rewriting their country's history. They just need to understand their country's history in its actuality in order to actually get to a point of reconciliation. And that clearly hasn't happened yet. No. And I, I think that there's this sort of, I love this last line, but not, it is to be hoped, by rewriting their country's history. I mean, what's so wrong about rewriting a history if it's not true, or it's ideologically motivated, and that ideology is preventing peace yeah and it's like it's so tough because like i i guess at some level right it's like we as marxists want to look at it as like no we're just like writing like we're just writing about material things that happened right like facts but at the same time it's hard to escape the, the idea that like when i do this kind of stuff and i'm not trying to frame myself as any historian i'm just like you know trying to do a little project to help radicalize people but i have an ideological bent and reason why i'm doing this you know what i mean so it's hard to say nothing is touched by like ideology but it's just to to what end is that ideology being kind of uh, deployed? You know what I mean? I mean, there's a, a famous line by Howard Zinn. I believe he even used it as the title of his memoir where he stated, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently he would say this at the beginning of his classes to tell his students that he is not a neutral arbiter of facts. Right. Because that's impossible. Mm -hmm. If somebody is telling you that they're a neutral arbiter of facts, it's because they are of the dominant ideology. So they have the conviction and the convenience of being in the majority of that country or state, of being the hegemony. 
And it's wild how those people get to claim the title of like free thinker. <laughs> when they're most, right. the, the free thinkers are most in line with like the hegemonic view on a certain situation. Right. I mean, this gets back to our idea of the victim. It's whenever they're told that they're wrong, that's when they immediately take the line that they're being silenced. You know, their, their free will to absolute speech is being attacked. When it's like, well, what you're saying is what everyone already believes. How can you say that you're being silenced when everyone agrees with you? Yeah. I don't know. It's it's really weird how they can adopt that language. But, it, you, you know, we were talking about this earlier before we got on, and I think it's going to show up more in some of the articles that we get into, you know, again and again, but how important that is, especially to, you know, reactionaries, right, to be able to claim that title of victim, right, and that they're oppressed. Because, you know, it's always, always important in many different contexts and many different facets of, like, a political struggle for reactionaries, fascists, etc., to be able to say, well, I'm oppressed. And then they co-opt the language of true revolutionary struggles or, you know, true struggles being led by oppressed, by truly oppressed people, right? I don't know. Yeah. This to me is just, you know, it's something that I come back to again and again on this podcast. And it's just like, you know, it's, it demonstrates one, how important the history is to kind of maintain the status quo, the history as it's commonly understood, right? Because I mean, some people like in, in Israel in 2022, some Zionists in 2022 that, you know, have been, you know, born, maybe they're Generation Z or whatever it might be, like, might actually be like, hey, this is really screwed up and we need to do something about this. You know what I mean? If it was actually taught in a way that actually conveyed, you know, and like, not even like just like the facts and logic, but just like the, just the Palestinian perspective on things, right? Yeah, there's this great uh, news source that I'm sure you're aware of. I believe it's 972. Mm -hmm. And there's frequently interviews with Israelis that are pro-Palestinian on that website. And a lot of the time, these are leftists, and they're come-to-Jesus moment, uh, I guess no pun intended since most of them are Jewish, uh, is that they have these international left communities where they are on the right side of everything. They agree with their whole society until the topic of Israel comes up, and they all mm -hmm. of a sudden find themselves isolated and ignorant. Right. And it's really not their fault, because this is not the history that they're taught in their own Israeli schools. They're taught the history of victimhood, that the Jew is never capable of being oppressive because they have this history of oppression already on them, that to claim otherwise would itself be anti-Semitic. And I think that's an issue we're going to have to grapple with as we go forward on talking about modern Israel and just far-right movements in general. It's not unique to Israel. Right. So, did you have any other closing thoughts on this article, or do you want to just leave it there, you think? There were way more $5 words in there than I realized when I was just reading it in my head. Right. I know. <laughs> it's always like that when you hear it out loud, you know, and it's just, you know, they try to... Yeah. You know, they're trying to be out on the edge, I think, a little bit here in 1997, right? But, like, they still cover their ass in every possible way, you know? They still have, they still leave themselves an out everywhere. They don't take any stand. And it's because I think, well, The Economist describes themselves as being at the, quote, radical center. And what is the radical center in a capitalist world but the right wing? So, 
Yeah, and just even their use of alliteration is kind of silly. Like they even said that their project turned out to have calamitous consequences. I, I just, where is their mind when they're writing this? It's such a goofy line to put into something that's so serious. I know. I just, it's a fascinating read. And of course, there's no author on this piece. They had no interest in putting their name on something so radical. Oh, I didn't even, <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that at first. Huh. That, uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. All right. Well, I think with that, I will uh, certainly post a link to this. And I don't know, I think I might post the links to the one in the future in case folks want to get ahead of it, see what they think, come in with their own thoughts, you know. Um, but I'll post that uh, just as a heads up. It'll be Beyond Grievance from Jewish Currents, and I'll post that. And then from that source, 972, um, it's how the anti-Semitic far right fell for Israel. So that should be an interesting one as well. So real no plan on when these are all going to come out. It's just kind of when it all makes sense with our schedule. So I appreciate you all uh, bearing with us. And Levi, of course, thanks again for you know taking the time to help us out with this. Um, but I think this is going to be good if we can add this into kind of the overall narrative that we're doing collectively as well. So, Oh, yeah, my pleasure. All right, comrade. Um, well, thanks again. And uh, to everybody listening, as always, thanks for tuning in. And, uh, you know, give us a... Uh, five-star rating on spotify i promise i'll try to get it on apple soon anyway we're at intervention pod on instagram as always and then at intervention pod at gmail.com so thanks again levi and uh, we'll talk to y'all next time thank you all right you don't want to you don't want to mention the tote bags or the individually flavored jewels that we might come out with soon to sell i need to get better um A better logo first, buddy.